Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Kleinman Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. Much work needs to be done very quickly if the United States is to achieve a net zero carbon economy by the middle of this century. Yet the fact is that the current rate of investment in clean energy technology and today's pace of clean infrastructure deployment lag well behind what will be needed to reach the mid-century net zero goal and limit climate change impacts. On today's podcast, we'll discuss research that identifies key bottlenecks to the acceleration of the energy transition, and which touches on finance, workforce mobilization, and related challenges. And we'll take a deep dive into a series of critical shifts that, if they take place, hold the promise of delivering an accelerated rate of decarbonization towards the 2050 goal. Today's guests are two researchers from Princeton University who have been involved in a broad international effort to identify and address real-world barriers to achieving net zero. They're starting a new initiative that seeks to understand the efforts of those who are directly involved in the energy transition, from industry players to financiers and policymakers, with the aim of better focusing limited resources to where they can make the most impact on the energy transition and speed it forward. Elka Weber is a professor of psychology and public affairs and professor of energy and environment at Princeton University's Andlinger Center for Energy and the Environment. Chris Grieg is a senior research scientist at the Andlinger Center and a former energy industry executive. Elka and Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Andy. Good to be here. Nice to be here, too. So the two of you are involved in a global initiative housed at Princeton called Rapid Switch. The initiative broadly seeks to understand real-world barriers to the energy transition and to align real-world capabilities with climate ambition. Chris, I wonder if you could start out by telling us about the project. This all started soon after I joined academia in 2012. So as you mentioned, I came from the industry. I was very interested in energy and decarbonisation. But as I became engaged with the research community and the modelling community around mitigation and this, this idea of limiting global warming to 2 or 1.5 degrees Celsius, I was struck by the coarseness of the analysis and the lack of attention to feasibility, or at least that was my perception. And there seemed to be a lack of appreciation of the scale and complexity of this transition and the speed at which what really is a massive vital system needs to be transformed. So essentially you were looking at retiring tens of thousands of existing facilities, remediating sites, redesigning, permitting, building larger numbers of clean energy and industrial assets. In, in what is a very short time, you know, we're talking about sort of 30 years notionally. And all the while we had half the global population still in its very early stages of development still growing their energy systems rapidly. On the demand side, we needed consumers to change their purchasing behaviour, their, their decisions around energy and uh, efficiency and con conservation. And initially, I focused on just the very obvious things from my business experience, like, like the idea that developing countries in Asia might retire their coal-fired power plants at half the economic life, or the idea that the world could be injecting tens of billions of tonnes of uh, per annum of CO2, carbon dioxide, into deep geological formations in just 30 years. Now, this had involved larger amounts of fluid being 
injected into the subsurface than we have ever extracted for oil and gas, or that we could site vast landscapes of solar and wind without a really serious community response. So none of this is to say it's imp impossible, but I felt we were just not giving it enough thought and, and enough analysis as to understanding what it would actually take and under what conditions could it be feasible. And the same sorts of gaps we found in mineral supply chains for lithium, rare earths, copper, and even human capacity. So we quickly realised that there was a, a massive gap between the energy transition research agenda and what it would actually take to implement those transitions. And in fact, at face value, a lot of this looked arguably implausible. And so it was probably, I think, in 2017, we decided to uh, launch Rapid Switch with a real focus on, you know, what are the barriers, what are the bottlenecks, what are the unintended consequences that could slow the energy transition or stop it or reverse it? And then how might we learn to anticipate these and preemptively plan and implement solutions and responses? And so that's kind of where we got to today. This is very interesting because you see projections from the IEA, et cetera, about the pace of the transition and the things that need to be done. But if I'm understanding correctly, there is a, I don't know if disconnect is the correct word here, but there is the, the framework for what needs to be done. And then there's the reality of what can be done on the ground. Is that essentially what this is getting at? Yeah, I'd say almost. And I would say what it, it's the disconnect between what the framework imagines us doing mm -hmm. and what we could actually get done on the ground given today's practices and norms. And I think that's the secret. I think we need to do things very differently if we are to go at the speed and scale that is being demanded by these models. So the underlying fact is that the transition is happening too slowly. I wonder if you could quantify for us, Chris, how much must it be accelerated to reach the mid-century goals of a, of a net zero economy? Yeah, Andy, that's, that is a, a, a difficult question to answer. In, in fact, you know, I think if we look at a global scale, we'd say it looks like we're running at about 20% of what, what is needed. So way off. Way off, way off. But it's very heterogeneous, right? So there are some countries that have barely begun their transitions. There are some countries who are doing better than others, but on average, we weigh off perhaps a, I think a fifth is a reasonable estimate if you're talking about a target of net zero by 2050. So Elka and Chris, you both come at the problem of the energy transition from different disciplines. Chris, prior to entering academia, as we mentioned earlier, you were an executive and you were in a number of natural resource and energy companies. And Elka, you're a professor of psychology and public affairs. I wonder if you could discuss the focus of your individual research and, and how this guides your engagement in the energy transition. And Elke, let's, let's start with you. As you said, I'm a psychologist, a cognitive psychologist by training. I'm studying how people uh, and organizations make decisions, you know, using the full range of decision processes at their disposal that includes calculation-based approaches, you know, but also includes acting based on rules, standard operating procedures, rules of conduct. 
uh, and oftentimes also we're guided by feelings. Yeah, at individual level, we might be afraid. You know, of of, of climate change and extreme weather events. You know, we might be proud of contributing. You know, to to the solutions rather than just being part of the problem. And so, all my life, really, I've been an ambassador of psychological approaches of how people actually make decisions to policy of bodies. You know, uh, the Intergovernmental panel on climate change, you know, for example, you know, we, we smuggled in a, a better appreciation of the full range of decision processes that go beyond rational choice, which comes out of economics, uh, into a chapter in, in, in the fifth assessment report on risk management. And, and I think it's really, you know, there's nothing wrong with rational choice, you know, and, and, and the notion that we sort of compute costs and benefits and, and do things rationally, but it, that, that in many ways, you know, if, if we assume that all decisions are made rationally, we overestimate the speed of change because you know all you need to sort of for new technology to be adopted is to make it cheaper. You know? uh, and we know that that doesn't happen. There are many real world barriers that relate to sort of decision processes, institutional lock-ins of various sorts, whether it's you know, existing procedures, uh, institutional habits, infrastructure that prevents rapid turnarounds in policies and processes. Uh, and, and unless we fully account for these additional barriers, but also then use our knowledge of sort of what causes the barriers to design decision environments that allow us to overcome them, unless we do that, you know, we, we, we can't speed things up, even when we make progress on the technological engineering and you know, on the financial side. Well, it's interesting what you said, that you said rational, right? And I think about economics. <laughs> in, in economics, everybody is assumed to or hope to act rationally. But what you're saying, that that's not necessarily the case. And it sounds like that probably has a, a profound influence on the pace of change. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, 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 and I think economics is changing and there's behavioral economics now. And so there's the realization that these social and psychological and political processes play a large role. And so it's not, not just psychology, but all the, the, the full range of social sciences that have to have a role at the table. And Chris, what about your side? Yeah, well, I think as you can guess, I'm a fairly unconventional scholar, Andy. I, um, I'm an engineer by discipline for sure, but after a career in business and particularly when you end up in leadership roles, you know, you pretty much lose any deep engineering expertise. And certainly I, I wouldn't pretend to be a competent engineer in, in uh, Princeton uh, Department of Engineering. So, so, but what I did learn as a company leader is that, you know, your life is about solving problems irrespective of their disciplinary nature. And so you look, for people with the skills to help. And I think, I think I also believe most of the real challenges emerge at the intersection between disciplines. And so trying to solve them in these disciplinary silos, I think is hugely problematic. And so I think that experience sort of gives me the appetite to look for those interesting questions. And, and, and I like looking for them irrespective of whether I feel qualified to answer them. So, so then I find myself working with colleagues in the social sciences, engineering, policy, economics and finance. And, and I think more frequently too uh, with practitioners in industry because I think we learn a lot from them. So, so I find myself being very attracted to want to work with people like Alpha because they bring this perspective um, which, which I think is crucial to this challenge. So let, let's talk about the research at hand. So you've defined four failure modes, is what they're called, that in essence create bottlenecks to an acceleration of the energy transition. Chris, could you start out by telling us about these failure modes 
and the process that led to their identification and their validation? So these are these failure modes. They emerge from our uh, Net Zero America study that I co-led with Princeton colleagues uh, Eric Larson and Jesse Jenkins. And we released that study in December 2020 and then uh, a finalised version of it in October 2021. But it got a lot of media attention and it also attracted a lot of attention from governments and industry. And that study distinguished itself from most other energy transition studies in that it looked at five technologically different net zero pathways that the US could take depending on what barriers or bottlenecks prove most serious for different technologies. So we were very anxious not to be pushing a particular technological pathway because we can't really predict how the future is going to evolve. The second thing we did was we downscaled these model pathways to show where the tens of thousands of assets might be best sited on the ground as the transition progressed. And these maps really help different stakeholders to get a sense of the complexity, the scale, the speed, and just how challenging the transition was going to be. And with that high level of technological and spatial resolution, we were then able to unpack other issues like employment, pollution, health issues, and capital flows, land use, etc. Now, the trouble was out of 350 pages or more, uh, and with so much detail, for many people, the transition simply looks overwhelming. And so we decided we needed to better communicate the challenge, and we tried to narrow it down uh, to just four critical issues. I once had a chairman that told me, if you've ever got more than four critical issues to to solve, then, then you don't know what you're talking about. And in the context of failure, this means not achieving net zero by anywhere close to 2050. So they The first one was the failure to allocate risk capital fast enough. So this is that capital that is put at risk to conceive, develop, permit, finance and build the clean energy and industrial assets that have to be built over time. And, you know, for the US on the supply side, this is in the order of $10 trillion by 2050. The second one is the failure to actually be able to build those assets at the speed needed. And so that brings into play the typical timescales to design and permit and finance, and then all the sequencing of other interdependent infrastructure, supply chains, you know, transmission, etc. Then the third one is the need to, uh, to establish and maintain the enduring support of communities in the location where all of this d- disruptive development is going to take place over several decades. And with it comes, you know, associated traffic, landscape changes, itinerant workforce movements, impacts on local businesses and services, and so it's that community element. And then finally, it's the need to transition the workforce, which really has two elements to it. First is it's an enormous mobilisation challenge. We need to expand the number of energy sector workers by a factor of one and a half to three times by 2050, and that's coming from an economy that was already fully employed. And then the second thing is we need to ensure that there's a prosperous future for workers in carbon-intensive industries that will inevitably decline. And so we felt like these four clear issues really summed up the challenge. 
So you've got this need to deploy the physical assets and the infrastructure. That's one of the bottlenecks. You've got the the failure to to mobilize adequate capital. You've got public opposition to potential projects, and then you've got the workforce issue. And these are all very, very, very sticky issues, obviously, often somewhat political as well, right? Very much so. And, and the, full, the full details on these are also in that Net Zero America report. So to overcome these four failure modes, the next step is that you identify five shifts. And I think it's interesting that there are four failure modes and five shifts that need to take place in these areas to accelerate the transition. Chris, what are these shifts? Yeah, so so we didn't invent these alone. You know, what came of the Net Zero America study was a series of relationships with industry stakeholders who who were very, I guess, fixated on the on the implementation challenge. And so we started to work with uh, people who were involved in, you know, the, the supply of in, equipment and infrastructure, EPC, you know, engineering, procurement, construction firms, and so on. And as we worked through, you know, the infrastructure challenge that existed in in uh, Net Zero America type scenarios, we quickly concluded with them that the current approaches and practices in their sector were simply not up to the challenge. And so we together worked through a set of scenarios which were essentially trying to frame what would you have to believe to be able to see the industry actually move at the speed and scale in Net Zero America. And so the first one, the first shift, was we needed to see a redefining of value. And so that meant moving beyond, say, a simple financial value or a net present value in the investment decision process to include kind of the, the creation of social and environmental values. And then to think about how that value that these energy projects bring is shared with host communities. So the idea is that, you know, the, the pathway of most of that value going to an energy company and very little of it going to the communities was not going to work at this sort of, with this kind of speed, scale and impact on landscapes. Is that sort of a look at the externalities, bringing the externalities into the value proposition here? It's not about carbon pricing and, and that sort of thing, but it's about recognising the inconvenience and the crucial role that communities play and therefore they ought to have a right to share in some of the value. And whilst you could get away without that for a few projects, the vast number of, of projects that have to be delivered over, over a relatively short time in this kind of net zero scenarios means that kind of norm is probably not going to be sustainable. So, so that was kind of the basis of that. The second shift was the need to embrace technological optionality by investing in, a, in an inclusive suite of technology. So including the green and the blue solutions in power and fuels, nuclear and so on. And, and that was because, you know, whenever we looked at a specific technology, we could see an enormous in, number of constraints or bottlenecks that were likely to slow it. And so the ability to, to, to keep a few technologies going seemed to be a, a way to make the transition more resilient. And then the third one was to move away from the traditional process of bespoke designs, which, you know, every time we do an energy project, it is designed from scratch. It is, 
you know, unique. It's got the owner or the engineer's preferences involved to a much more increased standardization and modularization in equipment and projects. This is very much the engineer's ideas. But this would allow us to speed up design processes, speed up permitting processes because, you know, permitting authorities would be used to seeing these same designs and to provide a, a kind of sense of clarity and certainty up and down supply chains so that we could, you know, that we, people could rely on the sort of specifications they were going to be supplying. So an example of that, one that seems to be very current, is SMR, small modular nuclear reactors. Is that the type of standardization that you're looking for, or is it going to many other areas beyond that? That, that would be an example, but, you know, to look at the hydrogen sector or the CCS sector. Right now, every project being designed is kind of bespoke. That's going to slow us down. And so the, the, the notion of small modular reactors can be carried across to, to, to renewable projects. It can be carried across to clean fuels, uh, sustainable aviation fuel, carbon capture and storage. And, and I guess what we're advocating is, you know, rather than going to be optimising and bespoke every new project, let's let's actually just dust off the designs and keep rolling them out like a production line, which is kind of the concept behind SMRs. So that lowers the cost, speeds up yeah. the process, essentially. Yeah. And gives certainty to supply chains mm -hmm. and allows people to hold big inventories and just takes away the, or takes, limits the supply risk. The fourth one was, was the need for a greater collaboration. And, and you can extend that to communication and sharing. So the, the idea of sharing information, sharing learnings between projects, and, and you need to do this across the whole ecosystem, so clients, suppliers, financiers, competitors, regulators and special interest groups. And, you know, that, that is going to build trust and it's going to speed up uh, learning and sharing and it's going to speed up the, the cost reductions. But it's really challenging, I'm sure we'll talk about that. And then the final one was kind of a, a much broader embrace in the sector of digital technologies. So this would speed up information transfer, provide greater visibility to more stakeholders, whether they be regulators or communities. And again, that was all part of trust. So, you know, I think at, at the highest level, this is about building a deeper trust much more transparency and and much more rapid delivery. Let me ask you a question on this this last point, the digitization. Can you give me an example of how the technology, the, the speed of communication, as you note, is critical to enabling the acceleration of decarbonization? So for example, you know, when we go to permit a project, we put together an environmental impact statement, a social impact statement, we submit it to the authorities, it's volumes of paper. We invite communities to, to provide consultation or feedback on, on the proposal. You know, we look for who's going to oppose the project. And I have to say, you've got, you've got first-hand experience with this in your past experience as an executive in the energy mining industry, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And so if you could imagine a common data portal where you, you lodged all of your designs, your proposals, your operating plans, etc. And then you couple that with the, the standardization that we talked about earlier. And suddenly you can see an ability to accelerate permitting because you know 
the, the, the speed of data transfer not being paper but being very much visual and and, uh, and online. And then you've also got communities which have a broad, in, you know, a very clear insight to what the project is proposed and they've seen projects like it before because of the standardisation, then, you know, you can see a, a really potential compression of these processes, both for permitting and, and uh, community approvals. And, and what we've seen, though, in the industry, you know, both in the energy sector and the mining sector, which I come from in, earlier in my career, is that the length of the time that it takes from conceiving to get through the kind of planning, permitting, has lengthened over time. It's not, it's not shortening. And we need it to really compress. So it's interesting, this issue of digitization, that, that what also came to mind, and you mentioned the different stakeholders, is transparency, right? So if all that information is online available, you have increased transparency, and then maybe the collaboration that you also mentioned, particularly when you're looking at community stakeholders, it would make it easier to work around that. Absolutely. I, and I think, you know, when I look at, if, if, you know, you will have seen some of the maps in Net Zero America and we've just done Net Zero Australia too, but when you look at these maps and you see the impacts on landscapes, communities, et cetera, you realise that unless we have much greater transparency, much greater openness and, and, uh, and sharing, you know, we're going to, we're just not going to have the trust we need to go at the speed we need. Elka, let me ask you this, you know, is there evidence anecdotal or, or otherwise, that these five shifts, if they happen, will truly lead to an acceleration of the transition to clean energy system? Have we seen success in these areas in the past? Sure. Let me maybe sort of get back to one of the uh, four failure modes, uh, which is community support, and, 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 and give you some examples there. So, so Chris and I, together with our postdoc colleague, Cagliano, have been looking at what determines uh, community support for renewable energy projects, uh, solar in particular, in Appalachia. And, and other colleagues you know, around the world have been studying you know, sort of the determinants of community support for these types of projects from a psychological or sociological or political science perspective. So there, there are two things that we know. Measures that improve the perceived fairness and the legitimacy of the decision-making processes increase social acceptance. And this relates to this notion of trust and, and, and transparency that you guys just talked about. Then the other thing that is really important is the perceived fairness of project outcomes you know, for social acceptance. And that includes you know, direct payments to the communities, uh, subsidized electricity tariffs, uh, local taxes, but especially also co-ownership. And so, like, a, I think a concrete example of how these things work is the Danish success in wind power. Uh, you know, Den Denmark is really leading the world, uh, derives, in, in, I think, in large part from the legal requirement that local communities own 20% of all of the project shares. And so what, what that all means, you know, this research, that we need to develop compensation mechanisms that deliver larger benefits to the local communities. Now, we still need to figure out what types of mechanisms different stakeholders prefer. There probably are you know, differences in, 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 in regions and countries uh, and, and, and probably political ideology and so on. But you know, how those mechanisms uh, influence community acceptance of different projects you know, will be determined. And, and our survey uh, of stakeholder uh, perceptions of change on net zero, I think will help us you know, make, 
determine the precise designs uh, for, for these interventions and for this broadening of values and value to communities you know, in, in different parts of the world. So Elka, the Net Zero Stakeholder Survey, which is the project that you are now embarking on, you and Chris and, and your colleagues in this, in the spirit of rapid switch, it really seeks to understand the on-the-ground reality in terms of the economic, technological, and related factors that influence the pace of the energy transition. Tell us about the survey. What insights and data do you hope to gather? And, and who's going to be replying to this survey? So the survey asks detailed questions about each of the five shifts that Chris described earlier, broadening the definition of values, enabling the technological options, uh, increasing standardization, uh, the degree of collaboration with different stakeholders and the extent to which digitization has been occurring to, I think, eight or nine different shareholder stakeholder groups. You know, and that goes from the owners of renewable energy projects you know, to the, the people who put it you know, sort of in, 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 into operation, the, 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 the legislators, you know, the, the permitters, uh, the local communities, NGOs civil society at large, uh, to see how they actually perceive progress on these five dimensions. And in, it's also a global survey, so in, in we have three different regions of the world, so we can basically, and we will administer it uh, once a year until at least 2030 and, and so on. So we can measure people's perceptions of the current state of progress on these uh, dimensions. We actually ask them for projections about where they will see progress for, first and why. And uh, the interesting thing is when we compare uh, different stakeholders' uh, responses in different regions of the world on these five different issues, uh, we can answer a variety of different questions. So we can look, for example, at the agreement or disagreement on specific shifts. You know, is it the case that owners and developers are describing a broadening in values or an increase in collaboration with communities? But when you ask NGOs and communities, they don't see it. You know, that would be an example of greenwashing of sorts you know, or, or, or of biased perceptions. Uh, or we could look at regional differences in movement on those dimensions. Maybe there's more standardization of projects in Europe, but more digitization in North America. And then we can use those disparities, you know, those, those, those regional disparities to understand the underlying causes of why we're making progress on, on, on them. And in turn, you know, sort of understanding the underlying causes, we can help speed up changes in other regions of the world as well. And then lastly, we can look at the accuracy of forecasts about the speed of change for these different groups of stakeholders and see to what extent you know, sort of we can use uh, inside knowledge of, of how these things are going to happen to speed things up even more. Let me ask you this question. How big is our understanding gap in these areas? I mean, a lot of this this information is is pretty public, you know, what might be going on in one country. Obviously, the, you gave the question, the, the, the example of Denmark being so advanced in terms of, of wind energy, et cetera. Give us a little bit more insight into the understanding gap that exists today. I think there's a huge gap in understanding. And so, first of all, I think one thing the survey will do is it will focus people's attention on these five different shifts that need to occur. And you know, as, as Chris was describing earlier, coming up with those five shifts was not an easy process. Yeah, you know? and so we we kind of assume that everybody in the world who will uh, need to contribute to those shifts is even aware of what mm -hmm. they are. So I think that the, the survey itself plays a crucial role in 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 informing you know the the community and all these different stakeholders that this is what needs to happen. 
The other thing is, you know, it, it will measure the current uh, our current progress uh, on, on 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 those dimensions or our current state as a benchmark, and then progress from year to year. Seeing progress is 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 very motivating. It's a little bit like playing a video game. Yeah, you know, sort of. The, I think they're so addictive because in each round you sort of have the opportunity of doing better. You know, on on something, and it measures your progress and it tells you about it. And so our survey will do that as well. Yeah, you know, we will inform uh, stakeholders around the world uh, how how they've done on 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 one dimension, but maybe not so well on the other dimension. Uh, and then just getting that feedback from year to year, seeing trajectories. You know, on on steep on some and not so steep on others, or. Steep in some regions of the world and not so steep on in other regions of the world. I think that itself will also be, I think, very important information, but also motivating yeah, to, to improve on those. We talk about progress. So, so the next point here is that the survey will be repeated annually and each year we'll have a different topical focus. I wonder if you could talk about that, that change in focus over time. There is a set of questions that is common from year to year. And that's, you know, those are the questions for on, 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 you know, the state of the art on those five shifts that will allow us to, to, to measure progress. And so that, that, that is a common core. Uh, on top of that, you know, we actually also have the opportunity to explore different topical foci, you know, from, from year to year. And so, for example, if we see that there is progress on one shift, but not on another, uh, in, this, in, the, in, in the next year, we can actually sort of dig down on, on why there isn't, uh, let's say, a progress on collaboration in Asia. And uh, so that, that is like one uh, opportunity we have from year to year. The other one is also just explore different solutions. And so in, in this current year, for example, we're looking at the perceived role uh, of, 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 of different policymakers, you know, the national governments as opposed to local governments and, and the business sector. Yeah, how do these eight or nine different uh, uh, stakeholders perceive the role of these different you know, important actors? What do they perceive the norms you know, on action on renewable energy? And so looking at sort of what people think ought to be happening uh, and then comparing that to what is happening you know, will also allow us to maybe sort of uh, focus on perceived norm changes down the road. So you know, basically explore the feasibility and importance of different solutions. So that's important. So that, that takes us to the next question here. And Chris, I want to ask you, you know, how will the data that is gathered by the, by the survey how will it affect the sort of on the ground rubber hits the road change that the rapid switch project more broadly is all about? I think the data in and of itself doesn't really do anything. Uh, for us to achieve meaningful change, we're going to have to um, back this up with sort of a very robust and uh, outreach, feedback, education program. A and I think you know, we're going to need to do that through a number of vehicles. You know, there's, there's the various meetings like COP, like Climate Week, uh, but then there's also a lot of industry bodies that, that have webinars and so forth. And, and, and I think, you know, we're going to have to give very frank and robust feedback to the sector because, you know, to give you an example, uh, the industry would say, many in the industry would say, look, we do stakeholder engagement and community engagement really well. My experience is that we do it, we do enough community engagement to avoid being stopped. Mm. And that works for a project here and a project there. But when you look at the cumulative number of projects that need to be facilitated with communities around the world for net zero, 
that standard approach is no longer going to work. And so we're, we're going to have to try and help the industry understand what, what this new level of uh, community engagement would be. Th- there's also going to be some of the shifts which, you know, are really hard and we're going to need the feedback from the sector to tell us. So, for example, collaboration. Collaboration, you can go so far before you start to run foul of some antitrust laws, for example. And so we, we, we can use that, what we learn from this process, to understand what needs to change there. In a perfect world, we are sharing intellectual property and we're sharing project designs because we need to speed up the, the delivery. So the idea will be that this survey, we, we learn from that and then we've got to really uh, have a strong outreach program and it needs to be all over the world. So therefore, you know, our, our research partners in, in places like India and Australia and, and Europe and China will be calling on them to help us communicate this progress. So what you said just a moment ago, if I can if I can paraphrase it, is good enough is no longer good enough in terms of community engagement if you really want to build trust, ensure transparency, and get everybody on board. Is is, is that an accurate description? Absolutely. And and the emphasis being on speed. Uh, if we had till 2100 or 2150 to do this job, I would be a whole lot less concerned. But we're really talking about an enormously challenging transformation. And you also mentioned collaboration. That brings the next question to mind, which is what incentive or motivation will industry have to collaborate if they're collaborating and sharing, I don't know, sharing uh, proprietary information, knowledge, whatever. I mean, what's in it for them? It's a great question. And, you know, even the research, even the, the industry partners I have now, you know, they hesitate at the notion of, trend, of, of, of this sharing. You know, one of the things we insist on, and certainly all the research I do, is that it's open source and fully fully open to the public. So that's often prompts a somewhat hesitant response from industry partners. You know, I think one thing we cannot can easily be convinced of is there is so much to be done here in this net zero transition. There will be more work than any individual company uh, or the or the collection of companies is capable of undertaking. And so, you know, I think. The benefits of the energy transition that come will be appreciated by governments and communities and so forth and and the industry as a whole. But they have to get past this challenge of the competitive instinct, right, That and, and, and that they are legally have some challenges about being too sharing. So, you know, I think this is probably one of the most challenging ones is is. The, the need for sharing and the need for um, transparency. It's going to be really challenging for the industry, but I think without it, we will fail to deliver at the speed we need. As you've just framed it, it sounds like it's an issue of common interest, right? So if anything that, that, that accelerates this transition, that accelerates demand for new technologies, for new types of clean infrastructure, those essentially, they grow the market and they grow the opportunity. And that could be, it sounds like I'm understanding here, that's a much greater opportunity than there is a potential loss. You know, that's the way we see it. And certainly when you're looking at the energy transition and the 30-year horizon, it's easy to see it that way. Getting companies to look at that long-term, you know, shared benefit type opportunity versus the, you know, the quarterly results the next year, you know, there's a disconnect there too. 
That's always the big challenge, right? The quarterly results versus the long-term picture. Exactly. And let me ask you both a, a final question here. So I, I, I want to know what are the next steps? So so the survey, I think, has just gone out this spring, the, the, the first of the surveys. Tell me, when will you be receiving feedback? What will you be doing with that? Just just interested in, in, in what your next steps are. I can maybe start with that. Our uh, first big challenge is to get uh, a sufficient number of uh, stakeholders to respond to the survey. As you know, it, it, it's, it's a diverse group, but also a very specialized group of stakeholders. Yeah, so we need labor unions, we need investors, we need regulators. Uh, and in, 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 in all regions of the world, and getting access to them is, is, is not an easy task. So that's what we're working on right now and, and, and working with you know, personal contacts, uh, doing podcasts like yours you know, to, to make the world aware. Uh, of, of of the existence of the survey, uh, and then begging them as as a public good, you know, to 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 contribute to 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 tell us, you know, their view on 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 these issues, you know, on these shifts where they are, uh, and to continue doing that year after year in return uh, for getting information on on the results, you know, and so summary results, but also you know, sort of integrations of results, you know, with with, with other data sources. Uh, so, so the kind of outreach uh, operations that, that Chris described earlier. Uh, but that's right now is taking sort of all of our attention here, is, is to get a, a representative a sample of these very specialized respondents around the world. The only thing I would add, I guess, is, you know, you, you know what it's like when you get a, a request for a survey into your, in your inbox. We don't respond to many of them. And in fact, you know, particularly on the industrial side of this, there's, you know, all of these stakeholders are hugely busy right now and there's a lot changing in the world with the energy transition and so I think getting their attention and being able to illustrate just how important it is to to our success in the energy transition it is a major challenge and uh, as Elka said, it's um, it's really occupying a lot of our efforts. So we really appreciate you inviting us here today to, to sort of talk about it and we hope that a lot of your listeners will actually uh, undertake this uh, survey. Well, Elka and Chris, thank you both very much for talking. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. Today's guests have been Elka Weber and Chris Grieg of Princeton University. Check out the Climate Center for Energy Policy website for our archive of podcast episodes, as well as research and upcoming in-person and virtual events. To keep up with the center, subscribe to our monthly newsletter on our website. Our address is climbandenergy.upenn.edu. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day.